Not releasing research data may be causing patients harm. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Andrew Vickers, biostatistician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York, New York. Thanks very much, Dr. Vickers, for joining us. Glad to be here. In a recent article you authored in the New York Times entitled, Cancer Data, Sorry, You Can't Have It, you state that researchers, when asked for raw data on a published article, will often refuse. What are the reasons for this? Well, often they don't give any reason whatsoever. You send them an email saying, Dr. Jones, I saw your paper. It's very interesting. Uh, You know, I I had a question. Exactly how many men were aged between 40 and 50? And you'll get a very short email back saying, this is my data set, and I'm afraid I'm not prepared to answer that question, or I'm not prepared to release the data to you so that you can do that analysis yourself. Occasionally, you do get a bit of a hint about what's going on. I do remember one story, and it's actually the story that I I started my New York Times piece with, which is that one researcher told me, well, look, you know, I, I don't want to give you the data because you might analyze these data come up with some different result, and, you know, that would cast doubt on our work. And, you know, we all work very hard on this project. It would make us very, very uncomfortable if you did your work and, and, and showed that what we'd done wasn't right. And, you know, of course, I think that's, that's totally unacceptable. You know, I think that the reason we do science is to try and come to the right answer. And the reasons why cancer patients want to do research is so that we can improve their care. And clearly what's going on with this refusal to release raw data is that individual investigators' personal careers are getting in the way of what would be benefit for the scientific and medical communities as a whole. So you're saying really that cancer research may be being treated as the personal property of the investigator. I think there's absolutely no question of that. Um, patients go on trials. I'm a statistician. I analyze trials. And we, you know, I'll run some analyses on my computer and I'll have a little spreadsheet and I'll, I'll report something to a, a journal and we'll say that 25% of the patients on the study had died within 10 years. And it's easy to forget that those 25% are somebody's father or somebody's brother or somebody's husband. And those people went on the study and died on your study. And they did that, at least in part, to benefit cancer research and so that future generations may not suffer in in the way that they did. And yet, when you speak to the researchers, they often say, no, I'm not going to give you my data set, right? My data set. You know, it now becomes my personal property, and I'm going to be the one who can determine who gets the data. In my view, I I wrote a paper for a technical uh, statistical journal saying whose data set is it anyway? Because in my view, when I run a trial, the data actually belongs to the patients who gave it to me. And I just act really as a, as a custodian of, the, of those data. And frequently when I am involved in clinical trials, I will publish the entire data set on the web along with the, the journal article. You know, you bring up an interesting thing about the patient. We all are familiar ethically what presents consent when a patient enters any type of research project. But why doesn't the patient in his consent be allowed to say, I want my data, if I'm going to be in your research project, I want my data to be shared 
with the medical community. Well, it's the researcher that writes the consent, right? Not the patient. The patient you know, doesn't get to say, you know, if I go on your trial, you have to do this, that, or the other. It's the researcher that says to the patient, if you want to go on my trial, you have to do this, that, and the other. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of interesting questions around consent. One of the, the big ones is whether patients should have to consent to have their data shared. And I think the consensus ethicists that really uh, value your, your own personal input on that is that we do not ask, have to ask patients to share their data if that data is, is de-identified, if there's no way of knowing who that patient was uh, so that their own personal privacy is protected. You know, once that's assured, I don't think that we should need to be going back to patients and saying, is it okay if other scientists look at these data to check that my results you know, really, were really right and perhaps do some interesting secondary analyses that could actually find out some more useful information. I think your point, though, is quite well taken. Patients go on these trials and don't actually have very much say in what the researchers do with their data, and that's somewhat of a problem. Well, no one's driving a change, and so I'm looking for somebody to make a difference whether it's at the institution where the research is being done, whether it's journals, or whether it's the patient himself. One can only look back. I was looking back when I knew I was going to interview you, and I saw in the New England Journal of Medicine, 1996, a sounding board called Secrecy in Medical Research. They complained that over the previous 10 years, there was tremendous secrecy in medical research. This was in 1996. It sounds like we're having the same conversation 12 years later, and nothing at all has changed. I think that that's right, that in many ways nothing has changed, apart from one big thing, which is that compared to 10 years ago, it is so much easier to share data. I mean, 10 years ago, you didn't have journals on the Internet. You didn't have everyone with broadband access at their work place. Email wasn't just a natural form of communication. So when that article was written reflecting what had happened in the late 80s and early 90s, people could say, well, you know, the sharing data, it's sort of difficult to do. That's not true at all now. As I said, you can just publish your entire raw data set on the internet at the same time that you have your the results of your study published in the journal. So in that sense, something very big has changed in terms of technology. What hasn't changed is the underlying attitudes. The You know, you mentioned the internet. The Open access on the Internet to communicating science, is this a response to this situation? Things like Biomed Central, which I have seen you on, is this a response or trying to answer this problem? Well, the open access movement is an extremely important recent and very progressive development in medical research. 20 or 30 years ago, the way that you, you would do some kind of study and you would send that to a journal, and the journal would publish that, in something in a, in a journal that looks like a magazine. It was a paper publication. And there was really no way around this. This was the only way that you were able to get your results out. And I remember when I started my research career, I would go to libraries and go into the stacks and pull out these big books of old medical research studies and, and read the hard copy. Nowadays, I, I don't go into a library from month to month. Everything is available online. If I want to read a paper, I just uh, click through using a, a, a web link. Now, because of that technological change, it's possible 
for anyone to read any research paper. We could actually demand of publishers that they make the results of medical research studies available to everyone. Now, 20 years ago, it would have been ridiculous to say, oh, please, editors of the Journal of Medical Research, please send a copy of your journal to every single person on the planet. I mean, that's... (laughs) It's going to cost postage and they've got to print it and so on and so forth. But now, because of the internet, in theory, you could make the results of, of any medical research study available to everyone. So, what the open access movement says is you have to do that. You can't impose a fee on people for reading results of medical research if that fee has already been paid by the American public in the form of tax dollars that's given to the government that is then used to fund that research. Until the open access movement came, you could click through on the web, you could go to some trial funded by the National Institutes of Health, funded by your tax dollars, and you wanted to read the results of this trial, and you click through on the web and it would say, I'm sorry, you are not a subscriber to our journal. If you want to read this particular paper, you have to pay $25 to us. Give us your credit card details, and then then you'll get access to this particular web page. I think that's actually kind of ridiculous. I agree with the open access movement that the results of research paid for by the U.S. government should be freely available to the U.S. taxpayers and to to everyone in the world. What I'm talking about is slightly different. There's a difference between the, the results of the research and the actual raw data. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Vickers, biostatistician at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and we're discussing the increasing chronic problem of not releasing raw data by researchers. You know, you ended just now by stating this research is often funded by public funds. Doesn't this really call into question the ethical problems of not releasing information that's being funded by our tax dollars? Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you one example of something that happened to me. We were interested in designing a particular study. And very commonly when you're designing research studies, you need a bit of data to try and work out how many patients do you need, how long you should follow them for, things like that. And we happened to find a study that had been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we thought, you know what, if we look at the data from the control patients, the patients that didn't actually receive any treatment, we could actually work out what would happen to our patients on our study. And that would help us design our trial, which was on a completely different type of drug. And so we wrote to the investigator and said, look, we're not interested in your trial particularly and we're not really interested in in the you know whether your drug worked or not but you know if you could just give us some of the data from the control patients that would help us design our study better and the investigator said I'm not prepared to release the data at this point now this was somebody who was actually a scientist working at the National Institutes of Health and the study was paid for by the National Institutes of Health and had been published several years previously now I think if the average American taxpayer realized that their tax dollars were going to pay for data that was then held back as personal property by government-employed scientists. I think they'd they'd have a big problem with that. The open access movement says the results of government-funded research should be available to the American taxpayer. I'd like to go a step further and say the data from government-funded research on government-funded medical research should be available to the American taxpayer. Then if I have it correctly, as a biostatistician, you can look at raw data material from other studies and other trials and see if it would be of benefit in other trials and ultimately be of benefit to patients. Sure, there's a whole 
variety of different reasons why it's a good idea to make raw data available. One of the most obvious ones is that you know, science is all about reproducibility. Can you do an experiment? Can I do that too? Well, in, you have some data and you publish an analysis on it. I should be able to do the same analysis on the same data and come to the same results. So give me the results of a clinical trial and I can re try and reproduce the results and see if I come up with uh, similar conclusions. That's not always the case. I was actually involved in a, in a trial in the UK and in Germany and the authors published their results and I actually thought they'd done the analysis wrong. These investigators, to their credit, sent me the raw data and I analyzed them using some more sophisticated and, and contemporary statistical techniques and actually found some really quite different results to the ones that they, they'd reported in their paper. Now, a secondary sort of benefit to that is that anyone knowing that somebody else is going to come along and look at their raw data and analyze it is going to make doubly sure that raw data is in good shape and that those analyses are done properly. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Vickers for being our guest today, and we've been discussing the problem of researchers not releasing their raw data and slowing, possibly, the progress of medical science. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.